Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Welcome to the last week of Ezra. If you've been with us this fall, this is where we've been spending our time working through chapter by chapter, trying to make sense of what has been, I would argue, kind of a challenging book for us. It's our last week of Ezra, which means it is our last week of renewal. So get on it now before it's gone. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is we've been studying this idea of renewal, and we've learned a couple things about it. We've learned that renewal isn't a feeling. It's not an experience that we're trying to somehow manufacture. It's not magic. It's not an event. It's not something that happens at 7 p.m. next Thursday. Renewal is something that is initiated by God's Spirit. It is accomplished by God's Spirit. And it is nothing more than embracing God's offer of a relationship with Himself. Renewal actually comes when we stop chasing after renewal and we start chasing after the God who renews. Now sometimes that's a moment. It's a decision. You cross over a hurdle. There was a barrier and you finally say, Lord, I'm done with that. I want you more than I want whatever it was that was competing with. And in a moment, you can find renewal comes. And sometimes, and probably more often, it's a process of gradually finding the barriers that are in your life that are preventing you from receiving from God what He has for you, which is this. He wants you. He wants to be in a real living relationship with you. And when we can get everything else out of the way and simply say, Lord, I'm bringing nothing to the table, He says, perfect. I'll take it from here. And that's where renewal begins. The gradual, purposeful, welcoming of God's renewing presence. This is renewal. And so how does the story of renewal here in the book of Ezra, how does it end? We finally make it to chapter 10. It's the last chapter of the book of Ezra. It's among the very last chapters we have of what happens in the entire Old Testament. And how does the book of Ezra end? Man, it's a mess. Did you just hear what Amanda read? Some of you even said, thanks be to God. (laughs) Honestly, it's a mess. It doesn't end well. The whole chapter's a mess. Chapter 9 and 10 are a mess. Some of you are in small groups and you've been sort of doing Ezra along with us. And some of you have been studying Ezra after we preach it. Like we preach it and then you study that text later that week. Some of you have been ahead of the game studying the text beforehand. And I've heard from a couple of you saying, so Tim, about chapter 10, what? What's happening here? How do we even understand this? You get to this chapter and you're left thinking, what do we do with this? Because this is a mess. And one of the first things we see in Ezra 10 is that even a renewed people find themselves from time to time eyeball deep in the mess of sin. And we talked about that a little bit last week and how confession is God's gift to a rescued people. Whereby we respond to His grace and are drawn back into close relationship with Himself. But the consequences of sin often happen in the real world. The consequences of sin 
happen in a way that the undoing of it gets complicated. There isn't always a nice, clean, tidy chapter and verse that you can point to to extricate yourself from decisions you made that were not decisions based on righteousness and who God is, but were decisions based on our own prideful, selfish desires. Dealing with the consequences of sin is messy. Now let me be clear when we talk about the mess of sin. It is not messy to turn back to the Lord. He simply welcomes us back. He offers forgiveness in Jesus' name. And based on what Christ has done at the cross, we stand legally justified before God. Our sin is not being held against us. So the only thing our sin is doing now is drawing us away from that close, intimate place with God. So the beautiful thing is the easiest part of the whole equation is that when we sin, God's gift to us is the gift of confession, saying, name it, own it, reject it, and come on back home. That's not the messy part. The messy part is the repentance side. That's a biblical word that just means turning away from and turning towards something else. Turning away from our sin and going away from God and turning back towards the God who loves us and created us and wants to be in relationship with us and walking back in that direction instead. And sometimes that's really hard because there are real-world consequences to our sin. That's what I mean when I say the mess of sin. And as much as the book of Ezra has been a story of renewal, and after all that we've learned about renewal, it just ends abruptly in a really awkward place, in a place of uncertainty, even disequilibrium, even confusion. Lest we think that renewal is some nice tidy process that we can just understand it fully, put a nice bow on it, and sleep well at night. When we get to chapter 10, it seems like the story crashes and burns. We have one last lesson to learn about renewal from the book of Ezra. And as this book ends, there's no way to avoid this last lesson. And this lesson is this. A better renewal is needed. And a better renewal is coming. Let's unpack that a little bit this morning. A better renewal is needed and a better renewal is coming. I'm speaking from the perspective of the people in Ezra's day. That even a renewed people can find themselves in the mess of sin. So what was the mess of sin that they found themselves in again? Let's do the setup. Let's do the setup. Let's talk about the beauty of a relationship with God. A God who's given us His law. A God who's revealed His heart through the story of His law. And the hero of the story being God Himself. And so we see things in God's law like worship the Lord only, right? The Ten Commandments. This is number one. Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there are no other gods. And to chase after things that are not God is not in our best interest and it does not bring us into close relationship with Himself. So He says, you worship me. You worship me only. That's the starting place for life together. That's one of the issues they're dealing with. The second issue that they're dealing with is God's commandment to remain faithful in marriage. Right? One of the other Ten Commandments is thou shalt not commit adultery. Th this kind of became an issue throughout the Old Testament, even to the point where a prophet named Malachi, 
who we think our best guess for when he was prophesying is just before Ezra showed up on the scene. So he's like a contemporary of Ezra. And in Malachi chapter 2, God brings a word against the people saying, you've broken faith with me. And the people are like, what? How have we broken faith with you? And God says, by breaking faith with the wives of your youth. I am faithful, says God. You will be too if you want to be in relationship with me. And so we have these two um, arenas in which relationship with God is fleshed out in really concrete ways. And yet, within one generation of them being rescued from Babylon, within one generation of this renewed people from going to, we totally get it, Lord, thank you, within one generation of worship and celebration and feasting and building forts in their backyards and enjoying their God, they've messed everything up. Chapter 10 opens, while Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down and tearing his clothes and ripping out his beard, remember this? A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly, wept bitterly, chapter Verse 2, then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. Now, if you remember last week, the issue here is not that they married foreign women. This is not an issue of race. This is not an issue of ethnicity. This is an issue of worship. And throughout the Old Testament, God's admonition, in fact, His command not to intermarry has specific reasons for it. And His reasons are because they worship other gods. And if you give their sons or take their daughters, you'll end up worshiping other gods. And that's not how a nice close relationship works. And so God says, don't do it. Because it's going to draw you away from me and the relationship that we are called to have together. And so the people acknowledge we've been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women. Elsewhere in chapter 9 and 10, it pairs that directly with and adopting their detestable practices, which is to worship anything other than the one true God. So basically, if we come back to our beauty of relationship with God, worship the Lord only. Oh, broke that rule. That's where this starts. And then the text continues. We've been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women around us. So what's their solution? Well, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of the Lord our God. Let it be done according to the law. So how are they solving this problem? By breaking this law. On the one hand, there's worship the Lord and serve Him only. And the other is be faithful in marriage because God is faithful to us. And they broke the idolatry laws. And so their solution is to break the marriage ones? Is that really what this text is saying? Keep going in the text. And on the 20th day, this is verse 9 of chapter 10, on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Our first example of pathetic fallacy. They're dripping wet. And isn't that just a, beautiful, a picture of their heart condition before God? Then Ezra the priest stood up and said, just in case you're unclear of what's happening here, you've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. 
and separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. So we've got worship the Lord only. You messed that up. And remain faithful in marriage. So let's mess that up too. Wait. (laughs) Hang on here. How is this a good solution? This is what I mean when I say that sin is messy. And that extricating yourself from the real world consequences of sin is not something you chapter and verse as much as it's something you approach with wisdom and with prayer and begging God to reveal the way through. It doesn't seem to me like there's a good win for the people of God in this situation where no one gets hurt. It it reminds me of the classic ethical problem entitled the trolley problem. Some of you may have taken ethics classes at college. And the, the basic premise is this. There is a trolley and it has no brakes, and you just have to accept that. And that wouldn't be a problem if there weren't these five people who are also unconscious and immovable lying on the track ahead. You also just have to accept that. And if nothing changes in this scenario, this trolley will run over those five people and they will die. But you can see there's a branch in the track. And over on this branch, there's another area here where there's only one person lying on the tracks, unconscious and immovable. And you think to yourself, well, that is a pickle. And it gets even worse because there's a switch and you're standing by the switch. The question that is posed by ethicists is this. Do you throw the switch and divert the trolley from the five to the one? I mean, the utilitarian answer is, well, of course, five lives lost versus one life lost. You aim for the least loss of life, so you throw the switch. And that's a utilitarian perspective, and that's one of the options. There's an alternative viewpoint that says the the moral wrong in this situation is already in place. And by intervening in this situation, you're claiming agency in that moral wrong and functionally murdering the one person who wouldn't have died at all. There's someone who is safe in this equation, and your choice to throw the switch takes responsibility for killing someone who wouldn't have otherwise died. And so clearly I cannot choose the wine in front of you. So what do you do? And there's all kinds of variants, right? Then, then the one on the tracks, the single one on the tracks is your son or daughter. Or, you know, there's all kinds of variants. They're like up the stakes and say, but what do you do? The, what's the reality here? There's no win where no one gets hurt. Stay with me here, because I think this actually is a mirror or a, an analogy to help us understand the consequences sometimes of sin. We can sin and we can grieve our sin and in deep sorrow, be it Canadian or otherwise, we come before God and we say, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. And he does. That's not the hard part. The hard part is when you say, now, I've hurt people through my sin. There are consequences to my sin. Now, how do I go back and fix that? And sometimes that fix is really hard to navigate. And sometimes there isn't a win where no one ends up hurt. There's still a need to do something. But this is what I mean when I say even a renewed people can find themselves in the mess of sin. And you find yourself saying, oh, if only we could go into our analogy of the trolley and have the maintenance crew fix the brakes first. Like, wouldn't that just solve everything? 
If only we'd done regular scheduled maintenance on the trolley. If only we paid attention to the mechanic and fixed the starter motor when he said to. If only I could go back and undo that sin. Oh, if only. And I think, honestly, that's... I have to think that's the heart of the people in this moment. Within one generation, they cataclysmically sidestep what it means to be in relationship with God. And I can just hear them standing in the rain saying, can we get a do-over? What do we do, Lord, in this situation? How do we respond to this? Because we're caught in the horns of a dilemma and we don't see a way out. And I think there is a principle here in this text, which isn't the main idea of the text, but it's certainly worth noticing on the way by. And that principle is this. It is hard and costly to choose righteousness in this world. It is hard and it is costly to choose holiness. It is hard and costly to choose God's ways in this world. But that is nothing compared to the hardness and costness of having chosen sin and having to try to undo it. It is always harder and more costly to sin and then to have to try and mitigate the consequences of that decision. If, no, if you get nothing else out of this, take this little aside. Choose righteousness. Conduct regularly scheduled maintenance on your trolleys. And don't get yourself into the mess to begin with. But that's not an option here in Ezra 10. And so here we are in Ezra 10, and the question is, is Ezra 10, is this an example of a good thing that God's people did, or is this an example of a bad thing God's people did? The text leaves this ambiguous. It does not answer that question. The people's brokenness is on full display, but there isn't enough actual evidence in the text itself to make a definitive decision or determination. I can't tie this up for you, give you the perfect answer, and send you home with appeased consciences. And so we need to look very, very carefully at the text and not go into it with our 21st century views of marriage and divorce and superimpose those presuppositions back on the text, nor can we try to remanufacture as though we could what's going on in the hearts and the minds of people in Ezra's day based on their understanding of marriage. We have to be careful not to make assumptions or to go beyond what the text itself says. There's another principle here, another aside. There's a couple of those this morning. And that's this. Just because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it too. This is particularly true anytime you're trying to study a narrative, an account of something that happened, a story that's been written down. I mean, you get that from places like, so Abraham lied about his wife being his sister so they wouldn't kill him to be able to marry off his wife. So go and do likewise? No, we all know clearly we don't lie about our wives being our sisters. That, that does not end well. Or, you know, Judas went and hanged himself. Go and do likewise. No, that, th- there's some really obvious cases. But in cases like this, we're tempted to throw that exegetical principle out the window and just, adopt, just wing it. We're just going to assume that we know the way this should roll. Their solution was to divorce their pagan wives. We don't know whether that's right or wrong. 
So we dare not speak definitively either way where the text doesn't speak definitively. And just because it happened in Ezra's day doesn't mean it's the model for us to example. In fact, I would argue we learn more about what not to do from the Old Testament people of God than we do about what to do. And in fact, I think that's true about us as well. You start looking at the stories of our lives, and I think we're all really good examples of what not to do. May we learn from each other's shipwrecks. So, is Ezra 10 a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it actually could be either. I mean, it could be a bad thing. It seems pretty straightforward that it could be a bad thing. Um, The Bible teaches that divorce is only permitted in the rarest of circumstances, and therefore this is not a good option. And so this might be the example of what not to do. The people are taking matters into their own hands, and they're making matters worth. They're breaking the covenants they've made with their wives. They're compounding their sin before God. And they're casting aspersion on the name and the reputation of their God. Right? The people of God are supposed to be a beacon, a light to the nations. That the character and nature of God might be revealed by how they interact with an unbelieving world. And, and now what is this going to reveal? The surrounding nations saying, those people, those Israelites, they're deal breakers. They're oath breakers. They're covenant breakers. What do you think that says about the God they worship and serve? I want nothing. Is that? No, this is... You can make a very strong case this is a terrible thing that they're doing. You could also make a case that it's a good thing. Because the Bible clearly also teaches that idolatry has been the consistent problem throughout the entire Old Testament. The number one of the Ten Commandments have no other gods before me. And the intensity of their panicked response before God, He tore out His beard... There's something here about a genuine desire to honor the Lord and serve Him only. And the one thing that mitigates this and might suggest that this is a good thing is how long it took them to do it. They didn't just issue a blanket declaration, everybody, put away your wives, get rid of those kids. But they took the time to investigate on a case-by-case basis. It took them three months to investigate case-by-case. And if this was a blanket condemnation of every one of those marriages, there's not a lot of investigating that has to go on. Unless, unless what we know about the character and nature of God throughout the rest of the Bible is also true here. We saw it in chapter 2. God welcomes us by name, but invites us on His terms. Remember that? The list of names, even foreigners' names, were listed among the people of God who returned in exile. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see Rahab, the Jericho prostitute, gets invited into the people of God and becomes a forebearer of Jesus. You can see Ruth, the Moabitess, who gets included in the people of God. This is not about foreigners being excluded from the people of God. But what was the actual sin? The actual sin was idolatry. When you marry a foreigner, they bring their idolatrous practices. So what if, and this is pure speculation, so run with me on this, but what if these investigations are saying, have you adopted idolatrous practices or has this foreigner adopted the Lord? And if the foreigner's adopted the Lord, hallelujah, that's one more person who knows the love and grace of our God. But in the case where the individual has begun worshiping other gods. That needs to end, and it needs to end now. I, I don't know which it is. And I'm telling you the last bit of speculation, so don't go taking that as, well, my pastor said. No. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to put the two horns of the dilemma in play here and say, the text doesn't tell us. 
It doesn't affirm their solution. There's nowhere in there that says, and God was pleased with their decision. And there's also nothing in there that says, and God sent a prophet to say, you foolish Israelites, hey, hey! Like, there's nothing in there. <laughs> and that fact is made even more apparent through something that you need to notice throughout chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the book of Ezra. And that is that God is completely silent. God doesn't speak. That's really significant because remember, it is God who orchestrated this whole renewal. It is God who moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he would issue that decree. It is God who stirs the people when he calls them back into himself. And even when the renewal stalled out, remember all the opposition and the delay, and it's the whole God's timetable thing, and oh, that's so annoying. And then after 13 years of delay, God sends Haggai and Zechariah, prophets, back to the people saying, come on, let's get this renewal thing going again. God has been speaking and acting, and he has been the principal player he's the hero of the story right up until the end until here and then he's silent so i guess i'm saying we need to be very careful not to misinterpret this text to speak definitively where the text does not speak definitively I can't tell you that they compounded their sin by divorcing their wives, nor can I tell you that they honored the Lord by putting away their idolatry. Which means this. These issues are not the main point of this text. This is not, therefore, a text about idolatry. This is not, therefore, a text about marriage and divorce. This is not a text about confession or repentance, and so we cannot be sidetracked, even as much as we've just spent 20 minutes being sidetracked, by these issues. Because the main point of Ezra 10, I started here, it's taken us a while to get back here, but I think the main point of Ezra 10 is that a better renewal is needed. And a better renewal is coming. I believe God inspired this ending to Ezra 10 and he made it dissatisfying. And he did it on purpose. Not just to mess with our noodle, but so that we might not think that we can somehow manufacture, claim, or continue in renewal apart from him. A better renewal is needed. This is one of those times where God is saying, listen, I'm going to end this book in a total desperate mess. Because he wants us to zoom the camera angle a little bit out beyond just what's happening in Ezra's day. He wants us to see the big picture of what's been happening from the beginning of the Bible until now, which is God created us to be in relationship with himself. He says, let's hang out, you and me, forever. And God people said no thank you they spit in his face and say we're going to do our own thing and instead of God smiting us all and killing us all he says no I love you too much to leave you broken and I love you too much to leave you rebellious I'm coming after you and I'm going to be relentless in my pursuit of you and I'm going to be faithful when you are unfaithful and I will be present even when you wander off into absence and I am going to be near even when you are running to be as far away from me as you can be I'm going to call you back. 
And after the entire Old Testament, we get to the end of Ezra, and it's still broken. Which means the answer isn't found in the Old Testament. No matter how gracious God is towards His people over thousands of years, offering rescue and renewal again and again and again, the entirety of the Old Testament, and very specifically, a messy ending in Ezra chapter 10, says that a better renewal is needed and a better renewal is coming. And it's not a rescue from Egypt. It is not a rescue from captivity like at the Exodus. It is not a rescue from the Babylonians. It is not a rescue from exile as here in the book of Ezra. God's people needed to be rescued from sin itself. This is a text that points us to Jesus. It points to our need for Jesus. And it reminds us of all of God's promises that He would one day do away with sin and death forever and that He'd write His law, he'd write his law on our very hearts. That we would intuitively just be drawn to Him and know Him and enjoy Him forever to enjoy a close, intimate friendship with our God. It is a text that reminds us that apart from God being the direct intervener We will always be slaves in Egypt. We will always be exiles in Babylon. And we will always be bound by sin. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. So God sent His only Son who took the penalty of our sin upon Himself and who opened for us a way back that we can know God again. God sent Jesus, His Son, because in our sin and brokenness, we cannot be faithful to Him. So Jesus became faithfulness for us. And they couldn't see it coming, not clearly. And it took a long time coming, like another four or five hundred years. But God finally, ultimately, definitively, once for all, did away with sin and death. This book ends not with a nice tidy bow, but with a question mark and a shrug and a sense of longing saying, well, what hope is there then? And it's not an answer that's shouted from the book of Ezra. The answer is whispered. A better renewal is needed. And a better renewal is coming. So hold on. Stand firm. Don't lose hope. God Himself is coming to save us from our sin. God Himself is coming to save us from our brokenness. This is a text that cries out that we need Jesus. Oh, how we need Jesus. And it's beautiful that at this time of year, as Ezra comes to a close, we're left with their very real human experience, an experience of waiting of longing, of anticipation of God's promised day when Jesus would come and deal with sin once and for all. Where Ezra ends, Advent begins. And God's people long for the day when God makes all things right. Look, when we started this whole mess of Ezra, I told you there were three stories at play here. Right? There's God's big story. The story of the whole Bible is mirrored in these few pages of Ezra. 
I also told you this very localized story that happened in a, a specific place and time and history. There's Ezra's story. But I also said, this mirrors and reflects our story as well. And perhaps the best place of identifying with this text, with all of Ezra, but very specifically this last ending, is to recognize, actually as far as our story is concerned, we are often in this place, this exact place of waiting for God's final renewal to come. Now, we are on this side of the cross, right? So we can say renewal is here. For anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in, takes up residence within us. We become temples, dwelling places of God's Spirit. And we can experience renewal in ways the people of God in the Old Testament could only dream of. So don't mishear me. Renewal is possible. It is possible today. It is possible now. We are a rescued people. We are a renewed people. But I think we can still identify with the people in Ezra's day if we acknowledge that even for we who can experience a beautiful renewal today, that an even better renewal is still coming. And we forget this. I'm sorry, we do. We think that this world is all there is. And so we love that Jesus came and Jesus died and rose again and we have His Spirit and we're like, so this world should be awesome because we're on the other side of the cross. Well, we may be on the other side of His first coming, but my friends, we are not yet at His second. And there is an even better renewal coming. Because if you look around and if you look within, you'll see that brokenness still seems to be winning from time to time. Our world is collapsing. Our world is is crumbling at the seams. And oftentimes we see that our own lives are mirroring that crumbling. And we say even on this side of the cross and even empowered by the Spirit, there are times where we still find ourselves in this mess of sin. And if this is all we have, we are hopeless. But this is not all we have. Jesus is coming again. Paul writes in Ephesians a really important little sneaky verse. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Yes, on this side of the cross, we experience renewal. We've got it right there. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We believe the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. We've been marked. We have the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, don't misunderstand the Holy Spirit. He's not just a celebration of who God is now. He's also a deposit. He is a down payment that an even better future is coming. And that is the future, not just when Jesus has come, but when Jesus is coming back. Not just when sin has been paid for, but when God Himself will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more pain or sorrow or crying or death. The old order of things will pass away. 
If we cling to God's Word for our hope and strength, we can experience renewal today, but don't ever be satisfied with that. We should be consumed with a holy dissatisfaction as a people who are longing for Jesus to come back and to make all things new and to bring not just a renewal, but an even better one. I apologize for the graphic. It looks like it's even new and improved. But it is. It's God's end game and He's not done the story yet. And so we can look around at our world today and we can see despair in other people's lives and we can see hopelessness in other people's lives and we can be tempted to fall into that same category. But the Scripture says, don't you dare. Because the world as we see it is not God's end game. There's an even better renewal coming. And the people of God can stand like like stars shining in the darkness. As the world around us goes to hell, you and I have the privilege of pointing people to life and life abundant because we have See what I mean when I say this last chapter of Ezra? It's not about marriage. It's not about divorce. It's not about idolatry. It's not. This is a text that says, Seek the God of renewal. Life is still messy. Of course it is. Renewal is available today. Yes, it is, by the power of His Spirit. And not as an experience that we're chasing after, not as an event that we schedule on the calendar, not as an emotion or something we manufacture. It is simply the growing welcoming of God's presence within us. It's the welcoming of His offer of relationship. We don't seek renewal, we seek the God who renews. And we can live life with Him, knowing Him today. And, even better, He's coming back. Jesus is coming back and we hold firm to the hope that He will one day wipe every tear and we will finally be with Him face to face. And in a world that's going the direction that this one is, I need that hope to carry on. God gives us that hope. Which is why we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, we see your grace in the pages of your word. We see your wisdom in closing Ezra, specifically Ezra 10, in a hot mess. Thank you for not giving us pat answers. Thank you for being a God who's bigger than somebody that we can tie a bow around and put on a shelf and say we'll deal with you later. Thank you for being a God who challenges us, who calls us to stay close to your word, to be careful about going beyond what your word says. I guess I want to thank you for showing 
in that day just like ours. Following you often is hard and it's messy and it's challenging. It's, it, you know, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that, that's, that's messy. That's hard. But as your people, we want to express gratitude for two triumphant realities. The first is which is that you've given us your spirit that we might experience renewal even today. Looking back at what Christ has done for us on the cross, we know our sins have been forgiven. We know that we've been washed whiter than snow. And we stand on the promise that we have been declared righteous. And that by your Spirit, we can know you and enjoy you right now. We stand on that great reality. And we also cling to this other great reality, which is that you're coming back. And that even as we grapple with the mess of sin and brokenness in this world and in our lives, sin doesn't win. Darkness doesn't win. Hopelessness doesn't win. Our God wins. And when you come back, Jesus, and make all things new, man, we're going to get to be with you face to face. I can't wait. But I hate waiting. We as a people hate waiting. Waiting is hard. So in view of these two great truths, by your Spirit, strengthen us to experience renewal now. And then plant such unshakable hope within us that no matter how dark the world gets, we will fix our eyes on the God of light. May we draw our strength today and forever from the God who saves. May we draw our strength today and forever from the God who renews. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.